Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. We'll look outside our island for uh, the next wee while. Jonathan de Burke Butler joins us once again. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right, so the first uh, port of call is the Philippines. Mm. And uh, I see there that uh, there's already riots as a result of this. But the initial tallies say the Marcoses are back, or a Marcos is back. A Marcos is back. I think the Marcoses are back. There's a few of them in it. I mean, who we're talking about is, of course, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., who's now 64. And uh, he goes by that nickname Bong Bong, I suppose, to um, distinguish himself from his father, who was, of course, dictator there for years and mm. was ousted in a popular coup in 1986. Um, you remember Imelda, of course, uh, who was famous for her shoes. shoes and, yeah. and yeah, and they had a bit of a round the Beatles back in the 60s, I think, as well. <laughs> so they're, they've been they were around for a long time and they're marked on the country uh, indelibly um, and they're back um, having been gone for a very long time uh, there seems to be no doubt about it at this stage I mean there's early tallies in from what I saw now recently of uh, 18 million votes that's sorry Bong Bong Marcos has 18 million votes against 8.5 million to its next closest rival It is a landslide it looks like it's going to be now there's 67.5 million people who are allowed to vote right and mm. they are collecting these votes from over 7,500 islands, okay? So it's going to take a while, a few days before they can actually put it together. But all the pollsters were saying in the build-up to this that he was going to lead by 30%. He was going to win by 30%. So it looks like a landslide. And as you say, uh, they are back. His main rival was a woman by the name of Lenny Rebredo. And what's interesting about her is that she was actually the vice president. So they don't they they can run on president and vice presidential tickets, the same ticket, mm. but they have separate votes. So what was oh. interesting about Lenny Libredo was that she's the former vice president, as I said, but she was the polar opposite of the incumbent, who is our now Rodrigo Duterte, who had his six very colourful years in office. Yeah. And he's now gone. But his daughter yeah. is the vice pres uh, the vice presidential candidate under the Bong Bong. Marcos ticket right. and it looks like she might do quite well as well so there's a bit of a continuity with Tuterte there and it's kind of uh, a deal between two devils if uh, if, if, if you have that opinion on, on those two people uh, Is there any analysis as to why the people of the Philippines would vote a, a Marcos back in? I think it's probably part of how he ran his campaign focusing on the looking back, it's a little bit like Putin in many ways, looking back on an era, a bygone era that was a better time uh, and trying to uh, reawaken the spirit of that golden age, as he was calling it. Mm. Um, it was noted by an awful lot of commentators that he didn't really take pe part in very many presidential debates and an awful lot of his policy was quite thin. Um, okay. So Ribredo, on the other hand, she stood on a sort of a ticket of getting rid or at least of investigating, shall we say, the legacy of Duterte and the questionable methods of his crackdown on, on uh, drug cartels and, and drug dealers, actually, in that part of the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it looks like it's just harking back to the past and they, they, they want to have another go with the Marcos family. Uh, the fact that they, uh, Duterte's daughter looks like she's going to be uh, elected vice president would seem to imply that the... Uh, at least a majority in the Philippines approved of what her daddy sure. was doing. Yeah, yeah, they did. And when he was the mayor in the town that I've never forgotten, which he, he absolutely, I think, was it Mindanao or is that a region? Anyway, sorry, my apologies. He was very popular as mayor in that part of the world. And that's mm. what got him into the presidential uh, seat. I mean, I, I, I think he has, although it's questionable and human rights groups are, you know, have always been on his back about his methods. 
I think he has cleaned up the country and, and uh, whatever his methods, he's got his, the results that he said he would get. Not condoning it in any way, obviously, yeah. but... Yeah. Uh, right, Burkina Faso, we're going to go to uh, now, where uh, this is a, a race against time, I suppose, to save some minors. Yeah, normally, um, when we talk about Burkina Faso, we're looking at the politics or something to do with jihadists, but this is a far more human story. It was actually sent in by a listener, so thanks to the listener for that. Um, it involves minors who have been trapped down a well since the 21st of April eight of them in total. So six Burkinabis, one Zambian and a Tanzanian who went missing following a flood underground at a zinc mine in a town called Pecora. So this is a place which is about 100 kilometres north of uh, the capital there. Um, And they're 700 metres underground. 700 metres. And and they're absolutely trapped. There's no communication with them at this stage. Uh, And though, though this is getting quite a bit of coverage... Uh, in Burkina Faso, it's not getting as much coverage as some of the other mining disasters we've seen in many in, in recent years in other parts of the world. Um, so I think it's interesting in that respect as to you know maybe it's because in deepest darkest Africa that is it isn't getting quite getting the coverage. Could also be the fact that they can't get any communication down to them. Um, so it's questionable at this stage as to what sort of state they're in uh, at the moment and if they do get to them. Um, whether they've survived or not. Oh God, love them! Uh, is there any um, any information on how they came to be trapped there in the first place? Perhaps about the mining practices there, yeah. that kind of thing. So the new there's a new prime minister there, okay, uh, President Albert Wedrago, and he's been there since March, I think, right? So uh, part of a three year interim government, and he went down, he went up to this particular mine, and he made a statement at the mine saying that before the accident, dynamite was used on the open air part of the mine, which weakened the underground gallery and enabled the flooding. He announced there and then that there would be an inquiry to find out who was responsible and that the mine officials would not be allowed to leave Mm -hmm. the country uh, until that inquiry had come to its conclusions. It's a Canadian company. Okay, we hear about an awful lot of Canadian uh, mining companies, whether it's in Africa or or South America. Um, But uh, it looks as if they are the ones who are going to be under the uh, microscope for this particular event. Right, okay. Uh, Next, we're going to go... This is a bizarre one, Mm. but uh, uh, it's a British police officer, is that who appeared on the Nigerian edition of Big Brother. Yes, this is a a, a young woman by the name of Kafilat Karim. She was serving as a a member of the London Metropolitan Police, okay? And Mm. back in 2019, she did auditions for Big Brother Niger. That's what it's called. It's spelled N-I-A... Uh, N-A-I, sorry, J-A, something like that. Okay, shortening of of Nigeria. Big Brother Niger. And she was successful. So they said, why don't you come on to the show? And she said, I'd love to. However, I need to ask my chief superintendent. And the chief superintendent was a man called Jason Willem. And Jason Willem specifically told her that she wasn't to go on the show, right? So in fairness to him, he did say that he would look into it and he he took her advice that it, the Big Brother Niger wasn't quite the same as Big Brother UK. It was a little bit less controversial, shall we say. Yeah, right? OK. But after he looked at it, he spoke to her on the phone and he also sent her an email telling her that she wasn't to go. She replied saying that she had noted his advice and turned up on the show seven days later. Oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> she couldn't contact her then, obviously, because she had no mobile phone and she had no PC. So she was 77 days in the house. Mm. She got evicted. And now 
she's facing a misconduct hearing in London. Hence, the, uh, hence we know this. Uh, what the details of this story? So <laughs> it remains to be seen what will happen to her. Yeah, uh, but she's back in the UK now. Is she... She's back in the UK. She's at this uh, misconduct hearing, so she could be out of a job fairly soon. Okay, uh, do you know how well she did on the show? Was she voted out? Or uh, she was? Uh, she was seventy-seven days on it before she was evicted. Now I don't know who the eventual winner was, to be honest with you, but. Uh, I, I, I don't know if she just kind of went for it and thought she'd build herself a career in, in showbiz and leave the Met. But uh, anyway, at the moment, she's at a crossroads in her career, shall we say. There, there we go. Yeah, showbiz. It's, it's a tough business. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Israel, we're going to go to you next uh, where there's a manhunt underway. Yeah. Um, to be honest, uh, this is part of a lot of stories that have been happening since the end of March. There's been an increase in attacks um, in Israeli towns right. over the last couple of months. And um, it was getting to the stage where I kind of couldn't avoid it, if you yes. know what I mean. Um, this happened in a Jewish town of Elad, uh, and it's not far from the West Bank. So it happened in a park. It, it, this, actual, this, this town is actually very interesting. It was built in the 1990s, built uh, specifically for Haredi Jews so, or, uh, and Orthodox Jews. So conservative wing, shall we say, of Israeli society, right? It's not particularly big. And as I said, it's very new, but very close to the West Bank. And as people were out and about celebrating the Independence Day on Thursday, uh, two attackers with a knife and uh, with knives and an axe started randomly attacking people and they killed three men. All right. Mm. So the two, uh, two, three were fathers, right? They were in their 40s and one was 35. Between them, they had 16 children. Um, and they died and seven others were wounded and two seriously. So that body count could, in fact, uh, increase over the next coming days. But as I said, the reason I'm reporting it, I suppose, is because there has been an increase of attacks like this within Israel, which I think people have thought maybe had gone away a little bit yeah. uh, and that they were protected. I, I, but Yeah, these sound like more sporadic yeah. and usually not with guns, given that these, these attackers just had... Axes and yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of that kind of thing going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, as you said, uh, they're using knives and axes. So there, there's a manhunt on at the moment and uh, two Palestinians are the main suspects. And of course, when there's a manhunt happening, you know what happens. The IDF go in yeah. and they start knocking on doors that they don't necessarily need to be knocking on. And it causes an awful lot of problems for people um, in the West Bank and various yeah. areas around there. Uh, of course, the probably the Israeli security forces, do they even know where the attackers came from and that they could be, they could have been based in Israel, these people? They have actually pinpointed a town in the West Bank where they think these people came from. Yes, that's that's what they're saying at least. But, you know, it could be justification for going and knocking on doors in these places. But I I don't know, to be honest with you. It's a very grey area. Uh, right, uh, the British Virgin Islands we're going to go to uh, next. And I think this is a very interesting story because there's been a lot of in a wider context, there's been a lot of concentration on, on Russian money in London and parts of the UK are kind of a bit, I know, and I know Dublin is subject to this accusation as well, but a bit Wild Westy in terms of uh, its financial regulation. But anyway, tell us about what's happened to the Premier there of the, of the British Virgin Islands. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, this is a place that's a population of about 30,000 people. They have 13 MPs and it is a, a British overseas territory, right? So it's a bit like we were, I suppose, back in the day. They have a governor, the Queen is a head of state and all that kind of malarkey. But to all intents and purposes, they look after themselves, right? Mm. And they have elections and all that kind of thing. But this guy was the Prime Minister of this particular country up until the end of last month when he got on a plane to go to Miami 
with a, a colleague of his who was the man responsible for the ports in the British Virgin Islands. And the two of them were arrested, OK, by the USDEA, Drug Enforcement Authority, who have popped up their head very frequently and are very busy over the last number of months. And he's now in prison. Now, this is a guy, as I said, the premier of the country, who is now facing charges of money laundering, conspiracy to import five kilograms of uh, cocaine. And this was the real reason I think he was collared. He's planning and planning to assist the Sinaloa cartel to move thousands of kilograms of cocaine into the United States for a percentage of the money and using the BVI, the British Virgin Islands, as the kind of halfway point, if you like. So the fact that the guy who runs the Port Authority was there with him doesn't really look yeah, it doesn't good, look either, good. To, no, to be honest with you. So yeah, he's been he's been he's been put up in court. These charges have been read to him. Uh, he's been released, I believe, on half a million dollars of bail, and he is no longer the premier of the British Virgin Islands. They moved the MPs in the British Virgin Islands moved really quickly to elect a new premier who's Natalia Weekly, who's only been in the job since the fifth of May, and it's an extraordinary story. I've I've never heard the like. Yeah, and is and within the British Virgin Islands, is there kind of any concern that there might be a wide problem? You know, there might be some corruption problem yeah. going on here. It's a great question because there is, uh, and it's not just in the British Virgin Islands; it's also back in the UK. So I think there was a report commissioned just before this guy was nabbed in Miami, which basically recommended that it be returned to direct rule. Now, what's interesting mm. about the vote that was taken for the uh, to bring in the new prime minister was that the MPs, all thirteen of them, moved very quickly to make sure that they voted in this new Premier, Natalia Wheatley, who is dead set against the return of direct rule to the UK. Now, the UK has sent a government representative uh, to the British Virgin Islands to have a look and see what's going on. But uh, it could be a meaty one for the t- likes of Newsnight to, to kind of yeah. get, d- dig their teeth into and yeah. see what they can come up Fascinating with. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. All right, Peru, we're going to go to next for... Um, the president and his wife, uh, they, they uh, uh, both have uh, a master's degrees, or do they? Well, we, we're not 100% sure because uh, it now looks like their thesis, which they wrote over 10 years ago, is coming into question. Now, this is relatively newly elected President Pedro Castillo, uh, who's only been in office for 10 months and has already gone through 10 cabinets and two impeachments. All right, he survived wow. it all so far. Uh, now, it should be said, anytime we mention Peru, there's always Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Alberto, who's run for election, if not four times, definitely three times and has never won. So she's extremely frustrated and she seems to be the driving force behind an awful lot of this trouble for Pedro Castillo. Having right. said that, okay. without going off on a massive tangent, he did write a thesis uh, before he became a teacher and it has been discovered at least by one television programme called Panorama, would you believe, mm-hmm. that 54% of it was from other authors. They also found that two-thirds of the professionals who validated the thesis don't exist. <laughs> oh dear. So he could be in a little bit of trouble. Now you can get up to eight years in prison for uh, aggravated plagiarism in Peru apparently. Um, but of course... Castillo is saying this is just another one in a long line of malicious accusations against him and a, a deep stabilisation plan. And yeah. uh, he's not going to entertain any of it. Uh, but why did they investigate? His, uh, does his wife have any official position or was it just they thought they'd get a two for one deal? Well, I suppose it was two for one deal, but they co-authored the thesis. So that's what it is. Ah, so she, right, I see. She yes. can't stay out of it, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, right, on uh, staying with the education theme, uh, we're going to go to Australia now, where uh, uh, Satanism classes in Queensland. 
Well, it's not going to happen, uh, unfortunately for them. Um, this is a very strange story. Um, it started back in December of 2019 when a bill which has been very controversial over the last couple of years and in fact in the last couple of months called the Religious Discrimination Bill in Australia was going through the various houses, right? We don't need to go massively into the details of that. But what annoyed this particular sata- uh, satanic temple uh, was the fact that they couldn't teach Satanism in school, right? So they canvassed a few schools back in around early 2020 and they asked them would it be okay if we came in and taught uh, Satanism in the schools and then they went to the Department of Education the Department of Education said I don't think we'll do that so they took the case to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court have now kicked it out now their point is that they admitted at the end of all of this case that none of them were actually Satanists that they were probably more atheists and they basically were trying to prove the point that they were trying to say if you're allowing religion to be taught in state schools you should be allowing Satanism to be taught in state schools This is schools the same as argument well. as same the Pastafarian argument. argument. Uh, absolutely, yeah. which is a, a perfectly good religion and uh, one that I yeah. absolutely endorse 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, it's now become a problem for uh, some of the members because they went into court and they swore under oath, although they probably don't believe in the Bible, that uh, they were Satanist and oh, now they've retracted it. Right. So the judge is very unhappy with them and so they've now been told to come back to court in two weeks and tell the judge why he shouldn't forward a case to the DPP or the police and uh, prosecute them for perjury, basically. See, Satanists... That's what you get. All right, so what should we look out for over the coming week or so, Jonathan? Yeah, obviously Wednesday, uh, the biggest uh, piece of news and the biggest uh, event on the globe is the Eurovision is starting then. Uh, Thursday, coppers will be jam-packed. International Nurses' Day uh, is being celebrated there. And on Saturday in Berlin, a little bit more serious, Germany is hosting an informal meeting for NATO foreign ministers in Berlin to discuss the next part of the alliance um, for Ukraine against Russia. So there'll be a lot coming from that, I'd say. I would imagine so. Jonathan, thanks a million as ever. Jonathan DeBurka Butler, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We'll take a break. After that, how flexitarianism could help the environment. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.